Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 182. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and back with me once again is semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Sega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, how you doing today? Good, Derek. Glad to be back. Yeah, well, I knew you weren't going to be on a, on a round number because uh, you tend to miss those. So I knew I wasn't getting you for 180. 181, I had my hopes up, but 182, we're here. And I got to tell you, we, there's some stuff that is kind of floating around the, uh, we'll call it the uh, the water cooler stuff. And one of the ones, Jay, that we were discussing a little bit this week is, so Mike Santoli, I guess, did a bit on CNBC and he talked about retracements. Once, why don't you just explain for the listeners, like what was he talking about? And then I have some, I have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah. The, the, so the topic came up because uh, where are we sitting here in mid-August, right? The markets rebounded more than kind of 15% off of the lows. And I think it just, I get the sense a lot of people are trying to read into the tea leaves and saying, hey, the bottom's in and, you know, how do we, how can we tell? Like, what's what's the thing to make us think that the bottom is in? And And, and I think in all fairness, it's been a pretty quick rebound from the lows of mid-June. And I feel like, you know, people were stretching a little bit, trying to come up with some justifying numbers. And the, the thing that was brought up in that conversation, I think it's brought up, been brought up a few times in the mornings on CNBC was, hey, once you've put in a bottom, if you've retraced, meaning bounced back by 50% of the, mo- of the, of the amount that was lost, that's it. You, you've put the bottom in, Right. And it's a little, it was a little misleading because, you know, the first premise of if you've put in a bottom, then once you've rebounded 50%, you never break the bottom again. But there's the the mis, the thing that's misleading is you don't know if you've actually put in a bottom, right? So you have to make this assumption that the bottom is in. And if you do assume that the bottom is in, then this 50% retracement is a pretty bullish sign. And when I say, again, retracement, meaning on the bounce higher. So that was the context, Derek. And I think, you know, just knowing you and your uh, dedication to integrity in data and clarity of messaging, it rubbed you the wrong way a little bit, I think, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah, because I I said, all right, I got to look at this. Uh, And somebody, a couple of people had, had sent me a note on this. And just to kind of clarify, so if a stock's at 200, and here we're talking about the S&P 500, stock's at 200, it goes to 100, and then rallies back to 150. That would be retracing half of the previous downturn, right? That's kind of what the context, Jay, right? How, how it was that's what the context is, right? And is And that's right. And that's what he's saying. Like, hey, because we've recovered half of it... If that drop to 100 was a bottom, that means that, you know, we're not going to go back down there. All right. So I looked visually at a chart and I brought up the maximum amount of of time periods I could look daily on the S&P. And I said, just visually, this, this doesn't make sense to me. So I went back and I got to tell you, too, I'm going to get to a, I'm going to call it a chart crime. I actually let me just talk about this now. Somebody else had sent me a uh, a chart and the chart was labeled when half the bear was recovered stocks never move back to new lows and on this chart 
has time periods like October of 07 to uh, March of 09. That was the peak to the trough. And they also have a column that says, make new lows after 50% recover. And every column is no. And they have a question mark for this one. And they have here on the chart, it's uh, bear markets or is this, uh, yeah, half. So anyway, bear and near bear, bear markets. So I said, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I looked back and I said, all right, let me just look at two most recent periods. I went back and I looked at uh, 2007 to 2009, that whole period, the Great Recession. And the high was, you know, around, okay, well, here's the other thing. There's a debate at, can you do it of, of whatever the high was or does it have to close? On a close, close basis, uh, we didn't have a retracement of greater than 20%, which would be a bear market. But this chart said near bear markets as well. So October 11th of 07 uh, to March 17th of 08, on a high to, to low basis, it closed down 20%, on a close to close a little bit below 20%. And then by May 19th of 2008, made up, you know, retracement 50%. So cap made back half the, the prior downturn. And then we all know in March of 09, it was the triple six bottom. So there, no, uh, markets rallied back and then they made new lows. And then if you want to be absolutely technical about it, it has to be greater than 20% down to be a bear market on a close, close basis. Uh, May of 2001 to September of uh, 21st of 2001, minus 26.5%, rallies in January of 02, and then makes a new low in October of 02. So no, I'm calling chart crime on this because I've, I've been past a couple of these charts and I'm like, I, first of all, I, I have a problem sometimes with cherry picking. And I think this is what this is. And I, I didn't see the Mike Santoli piece on CNBC. That's what somebody referenced. Um, all right, Jay, but let, let me stop there. I think this is- uh, let, yeah, let me, let me, yeah, let me, let me summarize it up there. So you're saying that, hey, look, this data that's floating around that once you've retraced 50% of the decline means you're not going to retest or make a new low is actually false, right? You just gave two examples where the market was down nearly 20%, bounced up to recover half the drop and then did turn around and make a new low uh, within that downtrend, right? That's what you're saying. Like, so some of this data that's floating around is selective and it's, it's the minutia of if the bottom was in, then it works, but the bottom wasn't in. So of course it doesn't work. So there's a, there's right. This it's, it's a, uh, a little bit of a disconnect on the terminology. So I think what you're just trying to convey, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're just trying to convey like, look, just because we've recovered half the decline doesn't mean we can't go back down and have new lows because we've seen it twice in this century already. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's, uh, it just goes to, to speak, you know, I, I call them chart crimes. Because us as technicians, you and I both are technicians, as the rest of our investment committee at Zega is. I mean, we look at this stuff and there is, we kind of internally joke around sometimes. If you don't like how a chart looks, just change, you know, go from daily to weekly. Okay, that one looks better. Like you can fit a lot of stuff into charts and make them see what you want to see. 
but yeah, absolutely, Jay. I think it's, I think it's, and by the way, I, here's an analogy. You know, let's say uh, you look at a, a sports team. You say, well, anytime they've lost 10 in a row and then win the next five, they've never lost, you know, 10 in a row. They'll never lose greater than 10 in a row again until they do. And it's like, yeah, I mean, to your point, if we know the bottom's in, then of course you can't make new lows off the bottom. It's the bottom, right? <laughs> we, but the, the thing is, we don't know that the bottom is in, right? That's the trick. We need something better than this to tell us that the bottom is in. That's what we really need. And I don't, I don't know about, I think you and I both, you know, as chart guys look at it and say, yeah, it's probably a pretty good chance the bottom is in already on this thing. But none of this data that's floating around actually supports that, right? And you and I are not using that data to justify our opinion either. You're right. The data that's floating around definitely doesn't support that. Yeah. And by the, and I'll just say, you know, is a move recapturing, you know, half of the prior down move bullish? Sure. I'll, I'll grant that. I mean, I think that's good. You want the market making higher highs. Yeah. Up 15% in two months is pretty bullish. Fantastic. I get it. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Well, the other thing that I think is interesting about this time period that we're in right now is I realize, unfortunately, as you and I get older, uh, people don't necessarily remember time periods where interest rates were high or interest rates were rising. I mean, I always talk about, and I've talked about previously on this show, my experience in the markets in 1994 when the Fed raised over 300 basis points, over 3% in a year. And I don't know about you, Jay, but I, I feel like just the math alone on how bonds move, like why bonds go up or down based on interest rates. I think it's this period is giving sort of a, a, a re-education or a masterclass and things that people never had to deal with. I don't know if you're finding that same thing though, Jay. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm finding is that people are treating this sell-off and then once we finally kind of get some you know, uh, stability within the rates market that all of a sudden anything that was priced based off of bonds will bounce back. Well, they, they don't, right? They're related to the, to the rate of the bonds, right? So unless bonds drop, you know, values of bonds can't go back up, right? So if things stop declining, that's nice, right? That's good. That's stability, but things don't necessarily bounce up. So, you know, unless you're going to be the person that's holding bonds to maturity, and they're currently at a discount and you're waiting for them to appreciate towards par over time, that's okay. But when you think about like mutual funds and ETFs and bond funds, um, I do find that there's a little bit of a disconnect on the expectation of their performance, mostly because the bonds don't bounce like stocks when it comes to their underlying price, right? They, they are different for a reason. That's the thing that I found the most disconnect with folks. Um, just as they're watching, right? Because markets, we've all been lulled into the, uh, uh, I guess, the comfort that, hey, look, markets are going to rebound back and, you know, they'll come back stronger than ever. And listen, I'm obviously hopeful for that, but that may not be the case when it comes to bonds. It's a different asset class for a reason. That to me, Derek, has been the, the biggest disconnect I've seen from people that don't have experience in the bond market. The other th disconnect, I think, or really uh, misunderstanding or surprise for a lot of people who are 
younger than us and have only know, you know, the Fed's always keeps rates low and bond rates stay low, is the surprise, not only in the volatility in the bond market, but also you look at something like the AGG. I mean, that was a historic drop this year. I know people say, well, historic, you know, minus 12%, minus 13%. Yeah, I mean, AGG over time, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of times people run these these back tests or the historicals and they say, well, you know, AGG's never down more than this until it is. I mean, we had a really low rate period. And when you have low rates and you have a rising rate environment, the math says that bonds are going to go down. But I, I think the the severity of the move and then the fact that stocks went down and bonds went down just as much was sort of, I'll just say it, shocking to, to some people, right? It's it's very few years you find both bonds and stocks decline. And then you're right. We had, you know, an historical drop in the bond market this year, which by the way was not unforecasted or unpredicted. Like you could see this coming with rates where they were and they'd have to go back up, right? Um, I will, though, pivot a little bit here, Derek, and throw this one at you. Um, I think you believe bonds trend lower in yields over a longer period of time, right? We got through this inflation stuff. We get through this rate cycle. But am I correct in assuming or, or repeating that you think bonds are still in this you know, decline in yields over time? Yeah, no, you you nailed it. And the reason why I think that is, if you look at a chart going back to the highs in 1982, anytime, whether it's the Fed funds rate or the 10-year or anything else, it's been you know a downtrend. And we've had lower highs and lower lows. Now, at some point, the chart would say you have to go negative. And we actually went negative in the very, very short front months uh, in the COVID sell-off. But yeah, I mean, I, I think lower for longer is more likely to happen. The challenge is, like anything, you don't know if rates are going to go up or if they, we don't know if rates are going to go to four, if they're going to go to five, or they're going to go back to, to one and a half on the 10-year. But yeah, my, that's my, my premise. And it also goes back to the level of debt that we have and the relative you know, yields to Europe and a lot of stuff. Um, I mean, we know that with the debt where it is, and if interest rates go up to service that debt, it goes really, I mean, it goes up a lot. So I guess what I'm saying is, Jay, there's a lot of momentum to keep rates low. So I, I don't know if, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at a chart until proven otherwise, it's lower lows, lower highs, right? Yeah. And and look, I just wanted to throw it out there because I think we both agree that, um, you know, with the, with the hawkish Fed, we probably see, you know, more increases in the short term. But, you know, so it's, it's you know, bonds, I, I guess I'm counterpointing my other point, which is, look, like bonds can reappreciate, but you need rates to drop. And you're in the, you know, lower for longer camp when it comes to rates. I'm not sure I'm there necessarily. I don't have an opinion. The chart is pretty obvious. You're right. If you look at a chart of our yields, you look at a chart of the boons, you look at a chart of uh, the guild, like all of those, you know, bonds are, you know, heck, they, they've been negative for a while, some of them, right? So uh, it's just one of those things that uh, I just thought I'd point out that they may, bonds may rebound, probably not in the near term while we're in a raising rate, a, yeah, a rising rate cycle. Yeah. I'll, I'll just throw, there's a couple scenarios that I think, and, and I'll let you know when they happen. This is one of those, you know, hey, I'll tell you which one it is after the fact. So 
there's really three scenarios. There's the Fed keeps raising and the yield curve stays inverted, but the whole yield curve comes up higher. The second is the Fed gets to whatever the terminal rate is. I think some of the Fed funds futures are saying next April, the implied rate is around you know 3.7-ish. So let's say they get there and they stop and they hang out there for a while and the economy starts doing really well and the curve uninverts, reflates on the back end. You could say, okay, well, you got three, seven on the front. Does that mean four, five or five on the 10 year? I don't know. Or does it stay flat? You know, we're three, seven and three, seven at 10 year, which is still higher. And the other is, and I think a lot of people, this is where, uh, I think the the street or most people think the Fed gets to a certain number and then they start to cut again. And then the whole thing, like I said, I'll tell you which one of these happens after it happens. But to me, those are the three cases. And, you know, in order for bonds to go up, like you said, they have to have rates go down. Or if you just want bonds to be sort of flat with higher coupons and higher yields, it's the second scenario. You get somewhere and you hang out for a while. So I don't know, Jay. I mean, I, I think that's really the scenarios. But most people think the Fed's going to go and then they're going to start cutting. And I don't know. We'll see. Well, the market's certainly pricing that in, right? I mean, we're yes. inverted now, right? The 10-year and the five-year are lower than the two-year. So that's what the market is saying. So that's, you know, that's definitely being reflected on where the dollars are being traded every day. And so what is that? So let's let's translate that to stocks for a moment, right? That's probably not great news for stocks. Am I correct? And actually, I don't even think your scenario three is great news for stocks either, but maybe. So maybe let's talk about the scenario where the curve stays. What was scenario two? Oh, where it flattens, right? Where they raise rates and then the market kind of comes up to it. That's probably not awful for rates, but the way the market is pricing in bonds today, which is the Fed will have to cut, it's probably not great news for stocks, right? Because that is indication, an indication of fear. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a perfect you know, Goldilocks scenario, rates normalize, whatever the heck normal is. Let's say you know, the front month is three and a half, three, seven, and you get, a, you get back to a 5% tenure. And the economy's doing really well, and 30-year and goes to 6% or something like that. But, but the economy is going really well. Like That's really good for stocks. The discount rate goes up and then future earnings are worth less. Um, but if the economy is booming and revenues are growing, I mean, that's that's probably a good scenario. But like you said, the scenario that's not good is the Fed causes a recession. I'm tired of the recession talk. Are we in a recession, not a recession? But I, I just think that if the Fed causes a recession or we just have a recession because we have one, of course. I mean, in, end, in the end, Jay, it comes back to earnings, right? It always well. I always say it's it's earnings and interest rates, right? They 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 do end up working together. And uh, but I you know when you think about this rate thing, um, right? Uh, uh, the old the old adage goes, "Don't fight the Fed." So if the Fed is cutting, it means they're trying to help the economy along, and the market will take that in a positive way. But things probably went poorly in order to get to that spot first. I think people also assume that the Fed will never open up the balance sheet again. Or stop, you know, that's that's the other lever that they've proven. In fact, they, I mean, the fact that they bought corporate bonds, uh, and they bought, didn't they buy ETFs too? I think they bought oh, ETFs, yeah. didn't they? They yeah. bought ETFs. Yeah, that's right. They bought some of the short duration high yield. So, 
yeah, I mean, the, the Fed has done things already that we didn't think they would do. So um, the fact, and I think that's, you know, we say there's a surprise, just like a lot of people have never gone through a rate tightening cycle like this. People have never seen the Fed not have the markets back like it does right now. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's, it's odd for some people. There was the Bernanke put, there was the Greenspan put, uh, the Yellen put, you know, the Powell put, and there's no, I mean, the Fed's just doing this thing with interest rates. It's focused on inflation, right? Well, well, the Fed has said, you know, our priority is managing inflation and we think that the economy can handle it. So we're not going to pay attention to the, to that for a while. So yeah, they totally yanked the put out, which is a protective thing, right? When we say there's a put in the market, it just means, you know, if things get nasty, the Fed will come to the rescue. Right now they won't. They told us they won't if things get nasty and they didn't, right? They didn't come to the rescue in the bottom of June at all. It was talk about more raising. They actually caused the June decline when they surprised everybody over a weekend and said, ah, we were 50 bips up until now we're 75 basis points. We're going to raise, right? So they don't have the markets back right now. The stock market's back. They are absolutely trying to break the back of inflation. Let's, let's pivot a second to another thing that I think some people miss, and that's where earnings come from. And we talked about rates. We talked about uh, some chart crimes. This isn't a, a chart crime or it's not a, but I think sometimes there's, there's a misunderstanding about the relationship between revenues and margins and earnings per share. So kind of set the table here, 2023, it looks like the earnings per share estimate is around 243. Um, by the way, there's <laughs> the chart. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but somebody sent us that thing where they said, you know, earnings per share estimates are falling off a cliff. And they did the scale that it looked like, you know, 246 to 243 was this gargantuan drop in earnings. Um, that's another chart crime. But 243 is the consensus estimate. I think Morgan Stanley is lower than that. I think some firms are higher than that. And that's on a per share basis. The revenue on a per share basis estimate consensus is about 1875. And the estimate for net margins is 12.5%. And by the way, when you hear revenue of 1875, for some people, it's like, well, wait a second. Is that billions? Is that trillions? The way the S&P 500 works is there's, and I won't go into this because I'll, I'll put you all to sleep, but the S&P 500, you know, if it's 4,300, to get to that index level, it's not like taking the, the simple market cap of all the companies in the S&P and like dividing by 10, which I saw somebody try and do. And the reason why that is, is because if companies split their shares or you have companies go out of the index, come in the index, they don't want large swings in the index just because some of the components change. But Jay, I mean, in the end, like if, if you make a hundred bucks and your margin is 10%, you make 10%, you know, you make 10 bucks. And so the thing I want to bring up with you is I was looking at a JP Morgan's guide to the markets. And uh, I'll put a link to that. They have a, a, I think it's page nine, profit margins and input cost. Jay, margins are second quarter of 22, almost closed the, you know, the full earnings uh, breadth there. 10.9% is the net margins. Those are down from above 13%. But I'm looking at this chart going back to 1992. And I, I, here's the thing. 
margins are pretty high right now. I don't know if there have been any accounting changes which change these things. You know, I haven't looked at it, but I don't know. I mean, it is is uh, if we're looking for some canary in the coal mine, is it margins dropping? Is that a is that going to be a problem? Yeah. So, so what you're saying on the chart, I think you missed getting to that point. Is it looks like it peaked out at the beginning of this year, and margins are starting to retrace a little bit. Is that fair? Is that what you? I think that, and I think margins are still higher than they've been going back to, you know, 1992. Although you can say in the last five years or so, you know, we uh, before COVID we were above 12 percent at one point. So yeah, that that's kind of it, Jay. But I'll let you take it from here. Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's margins are in an uptrend. We, you know, companies benefit from, you know, things like technology advances and, you know, generally prices declining, but we're in this inflationary period. So I'm going to tell you, like when I think about the things that can impact margins, right, it's your, it's your input costs, right? It's are, is it just costing more to produce what you were producing before? And we know the answer is yes. PPI was what? Was it 10%, 9%? What was PPI last week? Yeah, right, right around there. Yeah. I think. Right around there. Right. So like, look, input costs are higher. Wages, haven't really shown themselves yet, but those are going higher as well, right? That's those are on the rise. What did we see in the last uh, uh, jobs report? Was it a five and a half increase in wages? Five, five three, or five and a half, somewhere yeah. in there, yeah. So wages are going up, and the cost of production is going up. So I'm not surprised that margins are coming down. But I think so. Okay, great. That is why you know we think about the margin portion of it. But the actual dollars that flow to earnings can still be higher, even though margins are coming down. And it's because your revenue can grow at a faster pace than those costs. Am I correct on that, Professor? Absolutely. Yes. yes. Yeah, there you go, Jay. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, we always talk about corporate revenue, corporate profits, right? And while you're, I'm not saying it's wrong to track the rate of margins, how it's changing, but a little bit of the story, I think, is getting missed because the sales figures, right, uh, are also on the rise. I think there's a chart in that report somewhere that also says, you know, the rate of sales uh, also along with this uh, profit margin. So, you know, I, to me, Derek, while it's certainly a concern, it's why inflation matters, it's why PPI is an important number, but, you know, we still... You know, when you think about corporate revenues, I don't think it's, you know, I'm not sure that this is as scary or maybe you weren't making it out to be scary. But, you know, I'm I'm a little less concerned with this than the bottom line, actually. There is, you know, coming into this year, price to sales, which is another way to just isolate that revenue component, was right around three. I think the long-term average is somewhere, uh, it depends on when you cut off long-term, but it's somewhere around, you know, one and a half or so. And that might be scary, but then you say, well, wait a second, if margins are way up, it stands to reason that you, you know, you price it three times, you know, uh, revenue. Now, is that high? Well, in hindsight, it looked like that was high. And the market could say, well, of course it was a little bit overextended. To your point though, Jay, I mean, if I, if I go, if I make revenues 2,500 from 1875 next year, and I say, okay, well, I want to, I'll bring margins down to, 
you know, 9.8% instead of 12.5%. Well, then my EPS actually goes up two bucks to 245. I'm going to bore everyone in the audience by start doing tons and tons of these equations, but it's, it's just one of those things. To your point, like if prices come down, does revenue go up uh, and the margins get shrunk? I mean, it's the old X, Y axis, right? The, pro- the supply and demand. So I think you're right. I mean, revenues to me are the thing to watch. And then let's take a look and see what, what the costs are. At the same time, I mean, there's tons of technological advances that continue happening. I've had some people say that, I mean, return to work is sort of in play now. But I had one person with years and years in, in uh, you know, HR uh, uh, leadership roles tell me companies are saving a ton of money right now because employees are home and you don't have as much stuff going, you know. Uh, anyway, you know, they're not, not as much legal stuff going on. I thought, oh, that's an interesting perspective. So, yeah, I think it's, I think you're right, Jay. I mean, revenues to me is, I think we should be watching that, the margins, and then we'll figure out the EPS, right? Yeah. And, and the trick of it is where you got to worry is that revenues drop, not because pricing drops, but because demand drops, right? I mean, that's what the fear, that's where all of it comes into play with, you know, okay, now we're in a, gosh, I'll say recession. I was really trying to do a podcast without yeah. me saying recession. But if all of a sudden consumer spending drops, which by the way, it hasn't, and there's been no sign that it has, um, but if consumer spending drops, then the top line revenue drops down regardless of how much they increased in their prices to offset these higher margins. So that's the part where, you know, top line management is going to be more important than bottom line management, meaning revenue versus margins. The skeptic in me would take what you just said, that consumer spending is still really strong and say, uh-uh-uh, no, not on a real basis. But it, the thing there, I could I could set this up and make it look really scary, but earnings are nominal. We report revenues on the S&P 500. Those are nominal. Those are not adjusted for inflation. You know, margins are nominal. No, it's how much did you make, right? And then the, the market prices yep. off that. And then the other thing too, I mean, the technology piece, I, I don't think it should be discounted at all. You know, I, I have a, a, a friend of mine who started a food delivery business. And, you know, Uber and what's it, Uber Eats and DoorDash and all these those were started probably in the last, what, five, six years? He, he started- yeah, the whole uh, gig yeah, economy, right? He started this probably in 1994 or five. And I remember him telling me, literally, they got those maps of the telephone book and went to a copy place and had them blown up really, really big. They had you know CB radios. The drivers, they would try and put them at different spots. And then to get to somebody's house, they'd have to look on the map. Remember, it's like go to A2 to see your address. And then it would, I mean, he, the way, and you think about, you know, he was way early. He was right, but he was early. Technological, technological advances, I mean, can really increase profit margins. I mean, just. Well, yeah, now the app does it all, right? The app finds a driver that's closest to the restaurant and, you know, and uh, can make that delivery to the person's house. Like. So let, let the software do it, right? Versus somebody who's kind of running ops out of the restaurant. You know, in my previous life, I worked in a restaurant that had a delivery business, right? And so you're always thinking about those things. Now, it's not the DoorDash model where you got to go to a restaurant and then figure out where it's getting delivered based on where the employee is. But you're absolutely right. Technology makes that a lot more efficient. And that's, you know, 
that could be applied across everything that we do. Heck, even in our business, right, Derek, even when it comes to asset allocation, even when it comes to communication, strategy investments, technology makes uh, makes businesses more uh, efficient. I know that, you know, without, if, if the platforms uh, that we use today didn't exist, we couldn't, you know, run the thousands of accounts that we manage, right? Just, it would be impossible without the right software to actually, you know, allocate and trade options in people's accounts on the scale that we do. So you're right. Makes sense. Nope, absolutely. And here's another thing, and you've been on top of this, uh, and I, I don't hear a lot of this in, on, you know, the mainstream CNBCs and Fox Business and Bloomberg, and that's the dollar. You know, the, these things we were just going through, the revenues, the EPS, the margins, the dollar is really, really high right now. And as we've explained, when you have companies who are multinationals, which a lot of the big S&P 500 companies are, and the dollar is strong, when they sell their stuff in another country, the, the revenue goes down. Because if you sold your, you know, if, if it's $1.50, uh, if the euro US dollar is $1.50, meaning it takes $1.50 US to get one euro and now it's one to one. If you sold something for 15, uh, the equivalent of, oh, I'm going to mess this up, Jay. You know where I'm going here. Yeah. All right. Let me, here, let me do this. Let me do this. Right. So if you sell a widget in Europe for one euro, at home, you're getting a buck there you 50 go. for it in your example, right? Hey, my euro converts above it. Now that the dollar is appreciated, you still sell it for one euro, right? But now mm-hmm. you're only getting a buck at home, right? And so companies like Microsoft have been out. And even um, who else recently warned about, uh, oh gosh, sorry, it slipped my mind. But, you know, listen, large multinationals are saying the strength of the dollar is just impacting our earnings, which are reported in dollars, right? So it's just when the dollar is more valuable, the currency that you're selling your widgets in uh, are, you know, then it ends up being less valuable of a sale to you at the bottom line. There you go. Thank you, Jay. You rescued me there live on the uh, on the air here on the podcast. No, you're absolutely right. And, and that's not being talked about. It's not like you don't know it. You just you just got yourself backwards. I got it. I just thought of it. And I was like, oh, let me because I, I did in my head. But this is something that could be impactful and it could increase revenues. It could increase revenues on a nominal basis for, for companies. And a strong dollar typically is not good for the multinationals. You know, years ago, Jay, I had uh, Kathy Leanne on. She's a, a currency expert. She's written books and stuff. This is back, you know, TD Ameritrade. And one of the things we talked about, it wasn't a podcast back then, it was a webcast, the market huddle, was she did some math and she showed the impact Two earnings of the for the S and P at various levels on the dollar back then. It was kind of interesting. Dollar goes up. Sometimes you're at multinationals, the revenues come down. So, Jay, there's another scenario where margins compress, but the dollar comes back down, and earnings per share go up. I mean, this is what I'm saying. Like, it's all these moving pieces, right? They're all connected. They're all connected. I mean, there there is you know a value to commodities where your input cost will go down because your dollar is stronger, right? Takes takes less dollars, uh, uh, you know, to buy a barrel of oil, right? That kind of stuff, right? Because even though oil may be worth the same, your dollar is stronger, you don't need as many dollars to buy it because of a currency transition. So, yeah, look, there's pluses and minuses to it. Generally speaking, rising dollar is will impact the stock market negatively. You do a better job of connecting the dots of the dollar and the bond market, but as rates, 
you know, uh, as the as rates rise in the U.S., there is more of a demand for U.S. bonds, which you can only buy in dollars. So then you end up, you know, pushing the dollar higher. So there's this weird, you know, as rates go up, dollar goes up, markets go down. Like that dynamic of those three things kind of working together uh, typically stays in sync. But like you said, all connected. By the way, if I'm Jay Powell, don't I make a call to Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank and say, really? Really? Like, where, where, what are we at now? 250 around on the Fed funds rate, the effective Fed funds rate, a little bit higher. Uh, aren't they at like 19 basis points? I mean, they were negative. Yeah. Like, come okay. on, so Euro. By the way, I'm sure they Come talk. on, European Central Bank. Like, get with no. the program. Hold on. Hold on. Other side of this. They are going to absolutely have economic problems in the winter with their energy problems, right? Uh, England, UK's inflation was double digit this month, 10%, right? First time in, I don't know, 50, 40 years. So they are wigging out over there. You can't raise, their economy is not as strong as the US. They don't have the runway to raise that we do in the US, according to Powell. So I don't know, like, look, she may just be like, hey, stuff it, Powell. I got all kinds of problems. I don't want to send us into a deep recession over here in Europe. Because they're going to have one, right? I mean, that feels like a foregone conclusion because of what's going on in the Ukraine. I don't know. I think they're having, they're like, you know what? The Fed's going to do, the U.S. Fed's going to do all the work. Um, by the way, I, I think their rate is like half a percent now. I don't know. I, I'm i so ingrained. I, I didn't do my research before this, but I, I think, no, I, I, they're, you know what, U.S., you guys do it all. We'll sit back or keep our rates low. You'll kill inflation. We'll never have to raise and we'll just wait for stuff to come down. I mean, that's, I don't know. That's the way I look at it. And, you know, they, they've also, they're doing some funky stuff too with, uh, they have this new plan where if one of the Euro nations, their individual country bonds, the rate gets too high, they're going to come in and do this market adjustment Will they'll buy it. But I, it's a good point though, Jay. I mean, if they're looking at their, like which which market do you would you rather be invested in at this point? Would you rather put dollars in the U.S. or dollars in Europe? I mean, it's got to be U.S., right? Well, this is the funny thing too, because I mean, on a contrarian basis, how many times have we heard, "Oh, Europe's much cheaper. Emerging markets is much cheaper on a on a forward price to earnings ratio." They were cheap for a reason for a while. They're cheap for a reason, right? So, answer my question: Do you like the U.S. markets better or worse than the European markets for equities right now? Based upon what you just said, I think yeah. And you can check back with us in three months to let us know how wrong we are if we are. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll tell you which one's right when we know. <laughs> That's the thing. But I, I do think uh, you know, emerging markets and some of the European uh, economies have underperformed for a long time, as we just said. You know, the Apples, the Microsoft, these companies are multinational companies. They have worldwide exposure. So if you're buying the S&P, aren't you buying a little bit of the rest of the world too? I would say yes. Of course. Of course, it's all connected. But, you know, anyway, I, I've already said my piece on this one. All right. So uh, our our recommendations are to, to just keep doing what you're doing and <laughs> let you know in three months whether you should have done something else. I mean... This all comes. Do you have a list of things that I'll let you know when it's over? Because it's it's not an uncommon phrase that comes out of you. Well, and this started because of the. the, the I'm so tired of the. Is it a recession or is it not a recession? Because I remember I, 
I went back and I was like, sometimes the, the recession is called literally a, a year later. So it's like, is it a recession or not? I'll let you know. I'll let you know. And in the end, I think the markets are forward looking. I think a lot of times stuff is discounted. I mean, in March of 09, when the market started to rally, how many times do we hear people say, oh, these are green shoots, but this is a false rally. We're going to have new lows. I mean, and that turned out to be the bottom. To tie it back to what we started with, you know when the bottom's in, when it's in. And But in the end, I mean, I think we stay invested, be hedged. And we know that over time, the markets have performed pretty well. And if you have the right investments, and, you know, things are... You just need to focus on what is it that you need from the market and then make sure whatever you've designed is trying to get what you need. And if you get that, I was going to go to the Rolling Stones analogy. What's that song? You can't get what you want. You get what you need. Anyway. Can't always get what you want. All right, Jay. Well, I think we uh, beat up our uh, uh, a couple of points here and maybe some people got some of this, uh, some things out of this. Uh, you can always get a hold of me at Derek.Moore at ZegaFinancial.com. That's D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E at Z as in Zebra, E as in Eddie, G as in George, A as in Apple. Financial's up to you to spell correctly. Keep sending emails. Uh, I got some notes uh, on these topics this week. That's why I rolled them out. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Jay, exciting too. I don't know if you'll be on before the, again, uh, before the start of the football season, but football starting. College and what? A week, two weeks, and then isn't it's it's here. It's it's here, and because uh, some preseason games are already happening, and but you know what, Derek, I'm more excited for you know by the time this come out comes out, we will have already seen it. House of Dragons. Let's let's see how HBO pulled it off. We'll see what they did. All right, so I I was late to watching Game of Thrones. I think literally I watched it all. You were. When there were only there was only the final season left, which was fantastic. Um, so I, I'm not going to tune into House of Dragons. I'm going to see how that settles, and if you convince me, I should watch it. I'll watch it. But I'm always wary about the spinoffs. Remember, like Joni loves Chachi and Happy Days. Sometimes it's a little. <laughs> Listen, there's plenty of people that would say Better Call Saul was absolutely worth it as a spinoff from uh, Breaking Bad. And that's just coming to an end. Not my show, but I hear great things about it. I've never watched Breaking Bad. It's on my list. It's one of those things. It's like, what is that? Eight seasons and 20 episodes? That's a real commitment, by the way. That's not a quick, oh, let me bang out Breaking Bad. I mean, that's over 100 episodes. I don't know how yeah. many there are. 150. You're, that's a commitment when, you know, that could have been your COVID, you know, thing. Right now you're out. Yeah, but, when I had uh, COVID, that would have been... Know, that would have been something. I, uh, it's like watching The Wire. I've told people, go ahead, watch The Wire, but it's it's a long watch. I mean, here's something, here's a prediction. We're never going to see TV series have 25 episodes per year. I think that's done. Can I call Can I call the bottom oh, on that? that? Those days are over. I mean, gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate as a consumer, you know, like, all right, maybe I shouldn't reveal this, but probably it's not a surprise. I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And we used to get, you know, 25 episodes a year. And that, and that, like what? In all the new series, we get eight, 10, which by the way, the new Star Trek Undiscovered uh, is, is awesome. Oh, okay. In case you're a star, if you're a pure Star Trek guy or gal, uh, yeah, that's the one to go with. By the way, here, 
if you ever want to stump anybody, say the original Star Trek, how many seasons was it on? And people assume it was on like 10, 12 years. Wasn't it only on like two seasons and it got canceled? It's two and a half. Two and a half. They cut it off halfway in the third season. And yet it created this huge phenomenon, right? So. They were wrong. Yep. That's a show, though, if, if they had streaming back in, what was that? Was that the 70s? 60s. Was it 60s? Yeah. If streaming was back then, Netflix would have immediately taken that and it would, it would still be on today with, uh, with different people. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm a little skeptical of the, uh, you know, remember there was MASH and then there was After MASH. Nobody remembers After MASH for a good reason. You know, no. They tell people. Well, look, the Jeffersons were a successful spinoff from Archie Bunker. I'm just saying, Derek, it's That possible. is true. That's a great example. That is a really there good you go. example. I threw a 70s at you. Now we really showed how old Yeah. We're All right. So let's call it there. We got to get back to, to trading or doing something more. Frasier from Cheers. You want me to keep going? Frasier? Like, Frasier is a good show. We should probably end this. Frasier. Was that really better than Cheers, though? I beg to differ, Jay. I'm not saying it was better than Cheers, but it was a successful spinoff. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. By the way, as as we close, I'll just give uh, hard to be better than Cheers. By the way, hard to beat Cheers. Amazing they, show. I I don't even want to look it up, no, but I'm yeah. sure they did like 20 plus episodes a year. Almost Easy. almost certain they did that. Easy. Remember Thursday nights must see TV. That's why oh, movie boy. actors really didn't want to do myself. TV because they're like, I don't want to do like 30 episodes of 25, 30 episodes of this show. They just want to do movies. So anyway. All right. By the way, I, I think we were mentioning I'm two episodes into the show Blackbird on uh, Apple Plus TV. And I, I'm, I'm going to give it a strong buy recommendation, Jay. Uh, All right. Blackbird. I'll have to check it out. It. All right, Jay. Let's, uh, let's call it there if I find my, uh, the right button to end this. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again, Jay, for coming on. And uh, hopefully we'll see you back in a few episodes. Take care.